Pina Martini and Rich Linkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face Off. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. It is the first episode of March here on Legal Face Off. When we cough into our hands, we use Purell because we are trying not to get the coronavirus. That's yes. all we can talk about on Legal but Face Off. But is Purell actually doing its job? To I don't be know. Seen. I think we're going to talk about that we in a little while. We'll talk about that shortly, I, yes. I know. That's my fault, but I led you into that one. Rich Lankoff, Tina Martini. My name is Sam Panionovich, and Ben Anderson is behind the glass. We'll talk plenty of topics per usual. We'll talk to Bob Fioretti, who will be back to talk about running for state's attorney here in Cook County, LGBTQ minors, and also the legal grab bag at the end of the show. But to kick things off, return guests on this program, you know her and you love her. Gloria Allred, founding partner of Allred, Morocco, and Goldberg. She's a civil rights lawyer, the preeminent female rights activist, and of course the author of the book, Fight Back and Win. Gloria, welcome back to the show. Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm glad to be here. We're always very, very honored to have you on our show, so we appreciate it. So Harvey Weinstein, of course, was found guilty of third-degree rape and criminal sexual act in the first degree. Mm-hmm. He is now in Rikers Island, uh, facing up to 25 years in prison. You represent Mimi Halayi. I might be mispronouncing her last name. That's okay. She's now going by uh, Mimi Halay. Okay, Mimi Halay. Uh, she's one of the two women that Weinstein was found guilty of attacking. You also represent uh, Annabella Shiora, who's an actress, and Lori Marie Young. So tell us maybe some insight as to how your clients felt after the uh, rather groundbreaking verdict. Well, uh, I'll just speak for uh, Mimi at this point, and uh, Mimi is, as she said, very relieved uh, and, you know, very satisfied that the jury listened to her and heard her and um, believed her, and uh, now he's been convicted, and she's uh, preparing a victim impact statement, which she will deliver on Wednesday at the sentencing. Uh, only two, only the two persons who are victims, technically classified as victims, uh, that is Mimi and Jessica, whom I do not represent, uh, Jessica having, uh, in, in, in reference to Jessica, he was convicted of third-degree rape, and in reference to Mimi, she's the one, uh, they convicted him of a criminal sexual act against her, and that's a very much more serious. It's a violent felony. And uh, most of the time for which he could be sentenced would be on the basis of the conviction in reference to Mimi. So, uh, you know, there's uh, this is a case that was hard, you know, hard fought by both sides. After Wednesday, after the sentencing, that's not the end for Mr. Weinstein because the Los Angeles County District Attorney also, um, you know, has brought charges against Mr. Weinstein uh, one of my clients uh, is also the one of the two victims in the L.A. case. So there will be an attempt uh, to perhaps extradite him uh, to Los Angeles uh, to proceed with the Los Angeles County case as soon as possible after the sentencing. So, Gloria, many, including yourself, have called this verdict a turning point in rape cases. Can you please explain why you feel that way? Well, as... Uh, I've been practicing for 44 years, and I have never seen so many criminal cases uh, filed against high-profile, rich, famous uh, individuals, potential defendants, as I have in the last year or so. And that includes against Mr. Weinstein, but is not exclusive to Mr. Weinstein because, of course, we're also seeing, we saw a prosecution of Jeffrey Epstein, uh, and I represent five uh, victims of Jeffrey Epstein. Uh, Also of R. Kelly, and I represent a number of victims of R. Kelly, and he's being prosecuted by the Justice Department in New York, in Illinois, state prosecution in Chicago, uh, Cook County, and then also uh, in Minnesota. And uh, and, and, of course, we know that Bill Cosby was convicted. Uh, he's in prison now, uh, and uh, he is classified as sexually violent predator. I still have a civil lawsuit pending against him. We're going back to court soon uh, to set a date for trial for that. So, uh, and as I say, Cuba Gooding Jr. is being prosecuted as well in New York. Uh, so, and I represent uh, one of the alleged victims of, uh, actually two, uh, Mr. Uh, Cuba Gooding Jr. 
So uh, it is a turning point. Now, as to this, uh, the criminal justice system taking women more seriously and their allegations more seriously. And in reference to Mr. Weinstein, this was a big risk for the New York prosecutor to take. And it's unusual. And also for the L.A. prosecutor, because what we're talking about, at least in New York, has to do with often uh, persons who are victims. And that includes both Mimi and Jessica, but who continue to have contact with the perpetrator uh, after uh, the criminal acts took place. And so often in the past, prosecutors wouldn't file those kinds of cases. They, I guess, thought that juries wouldn't believe the women if there was continued contact. But in this case, we had the expert testimony of Dr. Barbara Ziv, an expert on rape and sexual assault. And she testified that it's very common to have continued communication uh, with the uh, person who raped or sexually assaulted a woman afterwards, and it's not like a stranger in a dark alley holding a gun to a woman's head and raping her there where you wouldn't expect any contact. There are lots of reasons for continuing contact after the rape with someone who is an acquaintance, someone you know, and it doesn't mean the rape or sexual assault did not occur. Especially in the movie industry, Gloria, where Weinstein enjoyed such a prominent position for years. Um, I think the fact that the jury was able to overcome the idea that one of the victims was still in contact with Weinstein and actually the, both of them were right. So mm-hmm. and exactly and to the but point one to a greater extent than the other. Right. Mine had minimal contact. Right. So it really is, you know, um, I think very compelling and to the jury's credit that they were able to overcome that stigma and still find in favor of the prosecution. Exactly. Uh, it's just really a, a new day in the in that sense, and you know I'm glad that the jury understood the nature of sexual assault. And I think one of the jurors commented, "You know, you can be raped by your own husband, even though you're married. That's possible." And then continue to have contact. So, and that's true of domestic violence victims as well. Often, child sexual abuse victims. What are they going to do? Leave their family? Leave their home? And often people in the workplace, employment or business, and, and there was a an employment or business relationship with these two victims in the New York case. And, you know, it doesn't mean that they're not going to continue contact with, uh, with Andrea Constant in the Bill Cosby criminal case. Yes, there were a number of calls afterwards, which seemed strange at the time uh, that we heard about that in court. But then when she explained that it was part of her job to continue to have contact with the trustee of Temple University, and and so she did, uh, even though he had victimized her, drugged and sexually assaulted her, uh, the jury understood and they convicted him. So I I give a lot of credit to juries to look at all the facts, look at all the evidence that's admitted in the court of law and make the right decision. Gloria, uh, yesterday was International Women's Day. You're, as Sam mentioned, one of the most prominent women's rights advocates and Mm -hmm. civil rights advocates in the country. Tell us what you've got next on your dock. You've always got some of the most interesting cases and clients around. So give our listeners an update or a preview of what else is on the all red docket as we go uh, go forward here. Lots of interesting cases coming up, but one that has to do with civil rights, but not necessarily women's rights, I did last Friday, and that was the case where I represent a 13-year-old middle school student uh, who alleges that he coughed in his class after drinking water, and it went down the wrong windpipe, according to uh, this young man that I represent, and he's Asian-American, and his teacher said, go to the nurse. And he said, well, I feel I, I don't need to. I feel fine. He was told, go to the nurse. And he went to the nurse. The nurse said he was fine. He came back and asked the teacher, did you send me because I'm Asian? Hmm. And the teacher didn't respond. And as he left the class, a lot of kids were kidding him about, oh, you must have the coronavirus. And anyway, ultimately, the te- we allege that the teacher retaliated against him for asking the question by doing various things to him, which we laid out at a press conference last week, and um, which are totally unacceptable. The school did an investigation. They tried to have the t- they, they 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 told the mother um, reportedly that uh, they, as a result of their investigation, they that what she alleged and the and the young man, the child alleged, was true. 
but the teacher declined to apologize. He said he didn't recall. And in any event, so we have filed a complaint on Friday with the United States Department of Education Office of Civil Rights, asking them to do an investigation and also asking Los Angeles Unified School District to do an investigation. Because we can't have stereotypes about, you know, Asian Americans and do they have the coronavirus. We can't have that interfering with their right to equal educational opportunity. And they have a right to ask that question um, and that the child asked and, and not to be retaliated against uh, because they asked the question. Childs now had to go to another class, not a science honors class, which is the one he was in, uh, but another science class. And, you know, I just think he's not the one who should have to pay the penalty uh, for what happened. That is the great Gloria Allred. She's been on with us multiple times here on Legal Face Up. Gloria, thanks again, and we'll do it again soon. Thank you. My pleasure. Have a great day. You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Faceoff. Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will & Emery and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers and Partners and World Trademark Review. Tina is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane's Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott, Will & Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal excellence, extraordinary client service, and a high-performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. To contact Tina and to learn more about McDermott, Will & Emery, visit mwe.com. You can like the show on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter and always rate review after you listen to the show. Search for Legal Faceoff wherever you consume your podcast. Joining us in studio, I believe for the third time, maybe more, Bob Fioretti, lifelong politician, running for Lifelong? Cook wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Oh, whoa, I feel whoa. like you were in office when you were like five years old. <laughs> it may be, but... Welcome back to the show. Thank you. So Thank now you're you. running for Cook County State's attorney. How did this come about? Uh, a lot of people asked me uh, I met some of the candidates and I didn't think they had the ability the qualifications the knowledge uh, to serve in this role uh, they talked about the criminal justice system they forgot about how big the civic uh, a civil sense is of that office and uh, what we do on taxes and how we uh, have to handle uh, taxes across this county um, there's a lot of reasons I mean I also share the frustration of so many people about the uh, the current uh, office holder here that I got into the race, and I've been encouraged by people across this county to stay here. Bob, you mentioned the current office holder, which is, of course, Kim Fox. You've been very critical of Kim Fox in many areas, especially in her handling of the Jussie Smollett case. Tell us how you think she got that wrong and how you think that affects her ability to be an effective prosecutor here in Cook County? Well, I think there's many uh, areas of what she did that was wrong. First of all, she took a phone call from a politically important or powerful position, a person who had a position in the former uh, Obama administration. Uh, At that point, uh, she should have just hung up the phone instead of carrying on at that point. She lied to the people on a number of occasions. Not only uh, she said she recused herself when she didn't, uh, she talked about, uh, you know, the grand jury indicted on March 8th. 18 days later, she dropped the charges. At that point, uh, she said, we do this all the time, but they were secret uh, hearings. Uh, nobody knew about it. Uh, the expungement process or sealing of the file wasn't done in secret. Uh, and to this day, she has yet to show a single similar situation. Uh, uh, and I think a day after that, she was before the Sun-Times. She said the same thing. We do this all the time. We had a very strong case. Uh, by the time it got to the Tribune, two days later after dropping the charges, well, there were some uncertainties there. Uh, the middle of April, on April 15th, uh, there was a whole series of emails that were given that um, showed that she was actively involved 
in the prosecution of Jesse Smollett, and she was uh, chiding her first assistant, saying, how can we have the um, uh, one individual, R. Kelly, with uh, four abuse situations and only 10 counts, and here we charged uh, uh, somebody with 16 counts. So she was very active along the way. Also, when Webb came out with his report, before two weeks before that, she said, what a great person with integrity. And then when he came out with the report, she tried, tried to char, uh, bring him into the mix of a bar out of the Justice Department and Trump. Uh, so either way you look at it, she, uh, she has broken the trust of the people of Cook County in the justice system. So let's talk about the issues that are facing someone who gets elected to this position. If you get elected, what do you think are the biggest issues facing you? Well, I think making sure that uh, justice is served equally. You know, when we file a criminal complaint against somebody, the people of the state of Illinois, what it really means is that we represent the victim. We represent law enforcement. But at the same time, in a sense, we do represent the defendant. We have to make sure that that defendant has the presumption of innocence. Uh, that defendant uh, stands up there and has a fair trial. Uh, I've heard from one... Uh, Two of the people that are before that are also challenging that the judges get around the system and decide what they do. No, it's up to the state's attorney's office to uh, make sure that we have a fair and just and equitable system for everybody, that the trials are fair and just uh, for the people. We have 30,000 felonies a year. 250,000 uh, misdemeanors that are there before the courts in all of the courtrooms uh, throughout this county. And so we have to be very, uh, I'll say, on top of it all the time. Bob, you're a former alderman here in the city of Chicago, and we've seen a spate recently of elected officials, particularly here in Cook County, uh, being arrested, indicted. You know, the longest serving alderman is your former colleague, Ed Burke, who next year will face federal corruption charges. Um, we just saw Rod Blagojevich released from prison. Obviously, that his 14-year sentence um, did not have a deterrent effect that Judge Zagel had intended. My question to you is, what would you do as Cook County State's Attorney to end this culture of corruption that we have in Illinois, and why do you think it's still so pervasive? Well, I've always been fighting against it uh, when I was in the, the eight years in the city council. Uh, and I think some of it deals with campaign contributions. Uh, the legislative inspector general of the city council actually have led to some of these indictments uh, at this point that I know of. Uh, 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 Willie Cochran out on the south uh, side, he got indicted. Howard Brookins, chief of staff, got indicted because of investigations that they did. Uh, you know. We need term limits, as I've always said. We need campaign contribution limits because that, that influences on where we go. Uh, but I'm, I'm very happy on the way some of the uh, U.S. Attorney's Office is dealing with the, these issues. I'm not even sure the state's attorney's office can deal with a broader sense of, because we don't have the ability to wiretap, uh, which there are hours and hours on Ed Burke right now uh, through Danny Solis. And so we, we have to, you know, we, we have to work together with governmental agencies. Let's not forget, there's probably... In the, in the county of Cook, almost 200 government agencies at this time uh, with police powers. We have 130-plus uh, suburbs that have it. Uh, we need to be combining resources to effectively fight corruption across the board here. Can you fix the Blackhawks? That's job number one, Bob. <laughs> I you know. Get, you, you know you I'm win, a Blackhawks. You, uh, you, know, know you are. Yes, and, uh, but you know, we're on a little bit of a streak, so let's keep it going. So cheer them on. All Absolutely. Right. That's Bob Fioretti running for Cook County State's Attorney. The website, bobforstatesattorney.com. Good to see you again. Good luck. Always good to be here. Thank you, everybody. We all know the legal world is complex and high pressure. There's no room for error. That's why judges and attorneys across Chicagoland have trusted the expert court reporters at McCorkle Litigation Services since 1948. McCorkle Litigation Services has accurately recorded every word from thousands of legal proceedings. McCorkle Litigation Services provides the legal community with peace of mind, transcribing testimony and depositions that can be used reliably by jurors, judges, and attorneys. For all your legal support needs, contact McCorkle Litigation Services online at McCorkleLitigation.com. We roll right along on Legal Faceoff here on a rainy day in Chicago. Rich Lenkov and Tina Martini in the studio, the Legal Eagles, and joining us now on the phones from Protect Democracy, protectdemocracy.org. She's a counsel there, Rachel Goodman, joining us on the show. Hello, Rachel. Welcome. 
Hi, nice to be here, Rich. Yeah, very interesting case. So last week, uh, the backstory is last week, a federal judge in Washington ruled that Ken Cuccinelli, who is the director of U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, um, has actually not been lawfully appointed to his job by the Trump administration because the administration violated something called the Federal Vacancies Reform Act. So first of all, Rachel, can you explain to us what that piece of legislation is? I sure can. Uh, so the framers of the Constitution included the Appointments Clause, right, to make sure that the that the Senate has a role in the, uh, the confirmation of officials and to make sure that um, officials working for the executive branch didn't have loyalty only to the president. Um, but there is a little exception there, which is that Congress can, by legislation, uh, fill in the gaps, essentially. And that's what the Vacancies Act is. Since since the earliest days of the country, there's been legislation that enables um uh, acting officials to serve under, you know, limit for limited periods of time while confirmation processes are unfolding. Um, and, and right now, the Federal Vacancies Reform Act includes both limits on who can serve as an acting official and how long they can serve for. Um, and Cuccinelli, in this case, was found to have been never legitimately uh, one of the folks who could, could serve in the role. And I think one of the things to remember about this is that the Trump administration has, has sort of wildly abused this act, but they're not the first to push the envelope, the Obama administration and the Bush administration and the Clinton administration all tangled with Congress about the use of, of acting officials. And so the legislation is what's meant to constrain um, the president's actions there. So what's the significance of this decision on Cuccinelli's directive in July, speeding up the process by which immigrants seek asylum? Yes. Yeah, so um, Cuccinelli issued this directive, giving uh, immigrant uh, asylum applicants only 24 hours, essentially, to prepare their cases um, instead of the 48 or 72 hours they had had before. And the Federal Vacancies Reform Act has a very strong remedy provision. It says that an action taken by an official who is acting illegally, who is not in compliance with the terms of the statute, um, quote, shall have no force or effect. So last week, Judge Moss in the District of D.C. declared that this policy, because it was issued by Cuccinelli, who did not have um, the appropriate legal authority at the time must be set aside. And so the individual plaintiffs in the case get the immigration consequences um, vacated. Uh, And although um, Chad Wolf has indicated that USCIS plans to appeal the decision, they're they're complying with it. Um, Cuccinelli has argued that that the same directives will be reissued, but the Vacancies Reform Act actually has also very clear language that prohibits um, a policy that's been struck down on these grounds from being ratified later on by another official. What are the broader implications, if any, of Judge um, Moss's ruling? Um, And, you know, what effect will they have on the broader immigration policies and the broader immigration strategy promulgated by the Trump administration? So I think um, that's the harder question of them all, right? Yeah, some of the effect remains to be seen. I mean, we think it's quite significant that you have a judge um, pushing back um, on the abuse of the acting official designation, um, and and it should give uh, lawyers at all the agencies a lot of pause about who they have in these roles and signing off on these policies, because it it makes um, lots of decisions being made by agencies legally vulnerable, kind of using the same logic as this decision. Um, But with respect to kind of the immigration policy in particular, I think... uh, What's significant here is that the Trump administration has um, really relied on acting officials and often illegally acting officials to 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 do some of the things that um, have been kind of most outrageous and most out of the mainstream um, in terms of immigration. Uh, And that's because, you know, um, Congress does exercise some kind of checking function when the Senate confirmation process happens. The Senate refused to, um, you know, Senate Republicans made clear that they would not confirm Cuccinelli. um, And he's been uh, the fall guy and kind of the the public face of a lot of the policies that have caused the most public consternation. Um, So, uh, you know, we have this unaccountable immigration regime that has been sort of free to implement the Trump administration's most controversial immigration policies. Um, and we're hoping that this decision uh, starts pushing back on all of that. Rachel, tell us just quickly, our listeners, about Protect Democracy and how you feel our democracy under this administration um, is, you know, in peril. 
Yeah, happy to. So Protect Democracy is a cross-partisan organization that aims to prevent the United States' uh, further decline into a more authoritarian form of government. And, you know, we take lessons from countries around the world that have seen um, strong democracies backslide into authoritarianism and look to do uh, work that that pushes back on the mechanisms and the patterns um, by which that happens sort of everywhere around the world and that academics have shown um, kind of happen over and over. And one of those, the one that's relevant here, is um, what we call executive power grabs, right? The pres- there are certain powers that the president has. The presidency is obviously intended to be quite strong in um, U.S. government. But when you start seeing the, the presidency amassing more and more powers that have been um, delegated by the Constitution to the other branches of government, that's a really strong warning sign um, that, uh, that things are going wrong. And so that is one of the areas of work we've been really focused on. Rachel, a minute on our legal grab bag. We'll be covering the um, Charles Schumer controversy where he called out members of the Supreme Court. Of course, many point to Trump's actions over many years, calling out by name um, many in the federal and local judiciaries. I assume that, um, you know, an example of a democracy being in danger that you would agree with is the chief of the executive branch criticizing by name members of the judiciary. I think that's right. I think judicial independence, you know, the judiciary is one of the the three uh, uh, branches of our government and the Frapers very carefully divided up power among those branches. And, um, you know, in fact, there are some reasons that judges are in a stronger position um, in terms of lifetime appointments in the federal system. Um, but but we do think it's quite dangerous um, to have the independence of these separate institutions kind of repeatedly called into question, whether that is the courts and the judges or, you know, the Department of Justice itself, um, which, you know, has, has been a pretty independent institution since the Nixon era. And um, we've seen that uh, erode quite a bit in recent years. And so, so that's also something we're, we're quite concerned about and focused on. She is Rachel Goodman, counsel at Protect Democracy. You can learn more at protectdemocracy.org. Rachel, thank you for your time. Thanks so much. Great talking to you today. Rich Lenkoff is an attorney with Bryce Downey and Lenkoff. Rich is consistently recognized by clients like United Airlines, McDonald's, Macy's, Dollar Tree, and the Chicago Bears for his outstanding litigation results. In 2015, Target named him their top outside litigation attorney in the country. Rich has received a number of industry accolades, including Illinois Super Lawyer from 2015 through 2019 and Leading Lawyer from 2012 through 2020 designations given to less than 5% of Illinois attorneys. Rich is also an active member of his community, including serving on organizations like the Advisory Board of Legal Prep Charter Academy and the Board of Visitors for the Northern Illinois University College of Law. In addition to his full-time practice, Rich is a prolific producer with credits including Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel, 85, the greatest team in football history, starring Barack Obama, Bill Murray, and the coach, Mike Ditka. And Renegades, a live show in Las Vegas starring Terrell Owens, Jose Canseco, and Jim McMahon. In addition to co-hosting Legal Face-Off since 2013, Rich is the legal analyst for The John Williams Show on WGN Radio. Bryce Downey and Lenkoff is a full-service litigation firm practicing general liability, workers' compensation, professional malpractice, business transactions, and intellectual property, among other practice areas. For more information about Rich and Bryce Downey and Lenkoff, please visit BDLfirm.com. That's BDLfirm.com. Welcome back to Legal Faceoff here on WGN and WGNRadio.com with Rich and Tina. Joining us now on the phones, Casey Pick, Senior Fellow for Advocacy and Government Affairs at the Trevor Project to talk about conversion therapy and the ban on LGBTQ minors. Casey, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So, Casey, last week, Virginia became the 20th state plus the District of Columbia to ban the practice of conversion therapy for LGBTQ children. What is conversion therapy, and what are its dangers and risks? Sure. Conversion therapy is the dangerous and discredited practice of attempting to change a person's sexual orientation or gender identity. Uh, This can take many forms, but all of them are premised on the outdated idea that a person's sexual orientation or gender identity can and should be changed, which we know is not the case thanks to modern science and evidence. 
there are many harms associated with this practice. Um, not among them are depression, anxiety, increased risk of substance abuse, family rejection, homelessness, self-harm, and increased risk of suicidality. Casey, I was surprised, frankly, how many states are still allowing this practice. Tina mentioned that this will be the 20th state to ban it. So what does the law cover um, and what is uh, what are groups like yours doing to further states um, efforts in this area? Virginia is the 20th state to prohibit licensed medical professionals from performing conversion therapy on minors. So we've been at this for really decades now, but we passed the first law like this back in 2012 in New Jersey and California. So the fact that we've come this far in only eight years to have 20 states is actually pretty rapid. Uh, the Trevor Project, along with various other organizations, um, is working hard to elevate the stories of conversion therapy survivors. And also, particularly for us as a suicide prevention organization, we do research and we are educating lawmakers and the public about the harms of conversion therapy and the fact that on our suicide prevention and crisis intervention lifeline, we hear from youth who are either survivors of conversion therapy or afraid that they'll be forced to go through it. And that is something that we take very seriously. So while the American Psychiatric Association has denounced conversion therapy for a long time, there's clearly still support among many states um, in as much as they have yet to ban the practice. On what basis is there still support for conversion therapy today? Uh, Part of it is a lot of people don't know or don't recognize that conversion therapy is still happening. So when we walk into a state and try and elevate the need to prohibit this practice, the first step is convincing lawmakers that it is still real and still happening and still harmful. Once that happens, we sometimes will come up against arguments about religion or about parents' rights, but those are pretty quickly uh, dealt with when we point out that these laws do not address uh, religious ministers, for example. They address licensed professionals and the license that is issued by the state. And with regards to parents' rights, those are tremendously powerful and important, but they do have limits, including what it takes in order to protect the health and well-being of children. Casey, we're entering election season and you mentioned the progress that states like Virginia have made. Do you think that we have evolved uh, to the point where LGBTQ issues are not becoming a political football anymore, that they are becoming issues that can be dealt with outside of the partisan process? I wish that were the case. And on conversion therapy, I can at least say that conversion therapy is not a partisan issue. We've seen tremendous bipartisan success there. Um, But this this year's legislative session has shown us many attacks, particularly on transgender youth, with regards to their access to best practice health care or their ability to participate in school activities. So we are still in a place where LGBT issues are contentious, and that means that it's important for allies and those who support LGBT folks to stand up and speak out. That is Casey Pick from The Trevor Project joining us on Legal Faceoff. Thank you, Casey, for your time. Thank you so much. It is time for the legal grab bag here on Legal Faceoff with Rich and Tina. My name is Sam. Thanks again to Ben Anderson, per usual. And joining us in the studio, he is running for circuit court judge, Democrat for judge, though. Chris Stacy joining us in the studio. Hello. Welcome. Hi. How are you? We're doing How's well. the campaign going? It's going great. Yeah. A, lot yeah. of, a lot of handshakes, which are on this time of the... <laughs> a lot of handshakes. Mm. today, And today was fun because I just got uh, endorsed. A rare endorsement by uh, Wilco's Jeff Tweedy, which was oh, cool. wow. nice. All right, one of my favorite bands. Yeah. You know, you can't win any judgeship without Wilco. That's, <laughs> That's what they right. say. It's an old <laughs> axiom of Chicago politics. That's right. I mean, you, you, nobody knows who the judges are half the time. So any 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 um, boost you can get is Absolutely. great. Absolutely. Also joining us in the studio, Ashley Alvarez, who's an attorney at Tristan and Cervantes, specializing in government affairs, and she will. Uh, 
add some flavor to the party because Rich said you have a new job. We can't talk about the new job. There's a lot but a new award, a new, new recognition. Award. Uh, tell I, us I, about your recognition over the weekend. Very I did impressive. Recently, good. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Um, I recently got an award through Lululemon and Save Money for women who are building Chicago. They nominated 20 women around Chicago who are just in the most uh, very inspiring roles, uh, doing all over the place type of things. Amazing. And it was really exciting. So Amazing. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. And great yes, company, great. Lululemon, <laughs> Canadian company. Sam, you know we love the Canadian companies hey. on the show. I'm not going to make a little. Oh, you endor- I didn't wear it on purpose, but you know. I think seems you did. quite I love my camera. Absolutely, <laughs> you got the totally Canadian flag inside your coat. That's Let's awesome. Roll. All right, seven Let's topics go. per usual, and of Busy. course, we're going to start with guess what? The coronavirus and the possible legal issues around it. Well, all sorts of legal issues, right? That you're not hearing so much about, but they're actual like things that are happening. And of course, I was on with Sam the John Williams show earlier today on WGN talking about some of these. Legal issues, Tina. There, there, there's myriad issues. Where do we start? So, there are personal injury lawsuits that will happen, right? Certainly, people are, are places like cruise ships and hotels and restaurants, even employers uh, are potential uh, defendants. Cruise ships um, will inevitably be sued. I mean, the one thing you can guarantee, as we talk about all the time on the show, whenever there are natural disasters or anything like this. There will be lawsuits, so uh, cruise ships will be sued for not taking the proper steps, not taking steps uh, quickly enough. There are um, potential lawsuits against employers. There's liability for employers for sending their you know employees home or not sending them home or exposing others. Um, there's issues with FMLA and AMA and to the degree to which you should pay your employees if they're quarantined or off work. There is legislation pending. Um, in the Congress now to mandate that employees should get some time uh, off with paid leave. There are workers' compensation issues. You know, you will have workers' compensation claims by employees who allege that their workplace exposed them to a greater risk than everyone else, and and therefore they uh, contracted this virus. We already covered a couple of shows ago the lawsuit by the American Airlines Pilots Union for, you know, they wanted American Airlines to stop flying to China. So you'll see people like cruise ship employees and airline employees sue, and certainly the nursing home that we saw in Seattle. Um, So no shortage of work for lawyers emanating from this. One interesting thing that I thought was to what degree you can allege that your civil rights are being violated if there's a forced quarantine. Um, and I did some research, and there's laws that go back, and case law that go back to the late 1800s that validate states and federal authority to quarantine you. So I'm sure you'll see some people litigate that issue, but the case law is pretty strong that um, the government can't force you to quarantine. The last topic that's interesting that'll be the subject to a lot of litigation is to what degree carriers will cover these losses. There's business interruption insurance that typically you carry. Um, there's, you know, a contract provision that's called force majeure that basically says that you don't have to abide by a contract if the breach is a result of a natural disaster or an act of God. So that's an issue that will be litigated for years. So I'm out of breath talking about all the potential issues, but lots of coronavirus legal implications, Tina. Absolutely. Um, I don't know. The one that really, I mean, there were, as you said, myriad issues. The one that really stuck out on my mind is cruise ships, for example, where I, I think that they're just contagion central, typically. I mean, even before the coronavirus, I think everybody sort of knows that when you go on a cruise ship, because of the way people are situated on a cruise ship, the fact that you can't get off the ship and all of that, that you're just more susceptible to get whatever's going around. And so, I, I, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it's it, it's tough. And you're also talking about trying to diagnose before somebody diagnoses themselves, right? And so, you know, I, for example, my firm, we have a policy now around the same time that everybody had been, you know, rolling out, you know, coronavirus, you know, policies about travel, about what to do when you get sick. Um, you know, there's a lot of the honor code, I think, here that if you're sick, you stay home. You don't pretend that you're not, Right. Um, I think there's only so much that employers can do um, to try to guard against this. Yeah, Ashley, from a you know torts perspective, the question I think will be not whether the cruise ship created the condition, because certainly they did not create the virus, but the degree to which they had notice of the condition and should have acted differently to protect passengers. You could say the same thing about you know someone who contracts it in a restaurant or hotel. 
If you were on that jury, would you find the cruise ship responsible for that? Obviously, the degree, the degree to which there's evidence that they knew about it is important. But, you know, this all blew up fairly quickly. Can you this, really hold a cruise ship or a, or a, a restaurant owner responsible? I'm a, I'm a plaintiff's lawyer, so, so um, doing tort litigation yeah. mostly. So you believe the answer is yes, of yeah. course. <laughs> yes, of course. Always. But I think the, I think the question is going to be more causation. Causation will be a question like, where did, where did this come from? Right. When did you get infected? It's going to be really difficult and you're right notice because uh this is really close to an act of god i mean it's it once it becomes you know the longer we struggle with this coronavirus the the more precautions we'll be able to know what to do with and then if you violate those uh, you know you violate care careful standards then there'll be more uh, chance for liability but the early early cases i i, I think those will be losers because Notice and causation. Yeah. Ashley, what, what do you think uh, in terms of forcing people to be quarantined? Typically, I think initially we're seeing people voluntarily quarantining and even, you know, erring on the side of caution. But, you know, you see it in movies all the time, right, with apocalypses and they're forcing people into camps and mm-hmm. segregated areas. I mean, do you think there's anything to the idea that you don't have the right as a government to force me into a quarantine when I don't want to? I mean, I obviously think that the government is weighing out something really serious right now, whether or not, you know, the mass public at large that could be exposed to something is something worth fighting a violation that someone could feel personally because they're being quarantined. And I think when that type of weight is held, and especially in cases when we're on cruise ships, it's really important that we respect that. I mean, we you have to go through a lot and there's a lot that goes into that type of consideration. So. It would be very, I, I mean, it's a case by case. And I think I, I agree. Probably the most important thing would be notice and really what type of factors we looked at so that that cruise ship decided to even deploy to begin with. So that's kind of where I, I stand. I well, guess. we're officially canceling the uh, legal face off cruise that we were planning. That's all. <laughs> Bad news. I, I wonder. A lot, of, a lot of deposits to return yeah. soon. Yeah, that was the architecture tour that's that we right. were going to take. That's right. <laughs> I mean, they're canceling everything. They canceled South by Southwest. Yeah. And I just don't know if. Yeah, it's an alarm thing. I was Tons waiting for them to yeah. cancel the parade, the Irish parade. Yeah. Yeah. I'm waiting for that shooting. All the alcohol will, <laughs> will, you know, dissipate the effect of the virus because of all the uh, vodka being consumed. Topic number two comes from NBC News, and uh, this is not a literal headline. It's more of a figurative headline, but uh, Chief Justice Roberts slamming oh. Chuck Schumer. All right. Exciting stuff. So, yeah, Schumer was at an abortion rally last week, and one of the things he said um, was not interpreted well by Chief Justice Roberts. Schumer was with a group of um, pro-choice activists, and he said on the courthouse steps of the Supreme Court that if they uphold these abortion restrictions that were being litigated, that Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh, of course, were the two most recent appointees by President Trump to the court, He said, quote, they won't know what hit them if they vote to uphold them. And he said, I want to tell you, Gorsuch. And he sort of dramatically turned towards the court as if Gorsuch would hear him. (laughs) I want to tell you, Gorsuch. I want to tell you, Kavanaugh, you have released the whirlwind and you will pay the price. And then in a very unusual move, Chief Justice Roberts uh, issued a statement saying statements of this sort from the highest levels of government are not only inappropriate, they're dangerous. All members of the court will continue to do their job without fear or favor from whatever quarter. So, you know, Schumer, of course, was derided by uh, Republicans and the president for, you know, making this very dangerous statement in their words. On the other hand, Schumer said, that's not what I meant clearly. I meant an elective price, um, not a physical price. I have to be critical of Schumer here, to be fair, because you know, these are lifetime appointees to the Supreme Court. And what possible price could they pay, right? I mean, there's, there really is no other way to interpret it um, than, you know, do something of physical harm to these people. I don't think that's what Schumer meant, but I think it was a really stupid statement because, again, objectively, what poss- what could hit them? And what, what, what whirlwind would be released against someone who's sitting on a lifetime appo- appointment to the Senate? On the other hand, or to the Supreme Court, on the other hand, you know, Trump is criticizing them. Trump has been the most vocal opponent of all sorts of judges and has attacked them personally. So I don't think Trump has any standing to say that. But I think what Schumer said was clearly wrong. And I think um, it was interesting for Roberts to come out and, and criticize the uh, 
majority leader. Well, but I also think that Roberts has been pretty even-handed in when when he does come out and criticize Trump also. Right, exactly. You know, when he was commenting on, you know, there's no Obama judges or Clinton judges back in 2018. Um, But I agree with you, Rich. I think that whatever Schumer intended, there may have been a disconnect between what he intended to say and what he actually said. And it does sound threatening. Um, and in this day and age, when we have to worry about things happening to, you know, people walking down the street, especially in the context of what we're talking about here, people feel so strongly about this particular st- subject. Um, you have to be really careful what you say, especially about uh, Supreme Court justices. Chris, you're hoping to be a judge. What would you do if uh, someone said to you, you know, a whirlwind will be unloaded if you if you if well, you rule a certain way. Yeah, I think first of all that uh, Schumer s- sunk to Trump Trump level. That's my thought on it. That crying Chuck, by the way. Yeah, crying <laughs> crying Chuck. Crying is- Chuck. Our our level of discourse in this nation is declining, and it was an inappropriate comment. Clearly. Uh, if I was a judge, you know, first of all, it's a circuit judge, so they could be talking about elections. You know, you know, the whirlwind will, will unseat you. For sure. Um, but I just think criticizing the judiciary in that way because you disagree is really um, a bad a bad thing because these are supposed to be independent decisions. And they're going to, uh, you know, half the people are going to disagree when you win or lose in a case. And if we don't respect our courts, it's the last bastion of civil behavior and uh, the chaos that that is out there. Especially when you're dealing with such an emotional topic like, you know, abortion restrictions. Right. The worst possible thing to say around that, around that issue. So. You're right. We move to Orlando now where, Tina, a six-year-old girl has been arrested. Six years old only. Yes. A very scary story of a different sort. So six-year-old Kaya Roll was at school in Orlando listening to a story being told when uh, police came in and arrested her, um, Officer Dennis Turner was the officer who sort of led the charge on this and came in um, and tightened zip ties around her wrists. She understandably got very upset. She's a six-year-old and was crying and asked, you know, why and was begging for help. All of this was recorded on video. And as it turns out, earlier in the day, she had thrown a temper tantrum and had kicked and punched three school employees, uh, which had led to her arrest on a charge of a misdemeanor. Uh, Fast forward, um, this officer ended up getting getting fired um, after this was looked into further and the charges ended up being dropped. He was gloating a bit. He said that he had um, done many thousands of arrests during his tenure, that he had previously arrested a seven-year-old boy, but that she, as a six-year-old, was now the youngest um, detainee that he had. I mean, I find this particularly troubling because when you're talking about a six-year-old, how can they really form the requisite intent to commit a crime? I mean, it's just crazy. This guy's a dope. I mean, yes, Florida does not have a minimum. It's one of the states that does not have a minimum age for arrest. But, yeah, this guy's an idiot. He also it's, it's worth noting that he had a long history of violations. In his 23 years at Orlando PD, he uh, was disciplined seven times for violations of department policy from things from unsafe driving to, oh, wow, a child abuse arrest in which he was accused of injuring his seven-year-old son. Mm. He was also accused of sending threatening text messages to his ex-wife in 2009 and racial profiling. So, you know, we see these stories all the time. And, uh, yeah, certainly at six years old, um, it's a little bit egregious, but not a good look for the police in, in this situation. Guys? Guy should stay Anyone away want from, to defend the police guy, on this one? Guy should stay away from Disney. Yes, probably. Yeah, probably no, not head over to Disney. This was particularly traumatizing for me to see this because all I could think of is everything that that little girl is going to have to go through now emotionally <coughs> to come back from something like this. I mean, she, by all accounts, was arrested. And there's not there's really little argument there. So just having the zip ties, although that might not be handcuffs, I think her wrists were too small. 
I mean, she's, she was arrested. She was taken and processed, and they had to give her a stool. Um, yeah, the video is horrifying. I, I watched horrifying. the video. I mean, listen, on the one hand, you want we want police to be accountable. We want them to be more present, especially in schools. There's a whole movement to having you know, more of these officers in school, especially in Florida, especially you know, in the wake of the, uh, the shooting that happened there. Um, but obviously, exercise some basic common sense. What do you do with a guy like that? I mean, that's really the question, because, I mean, we pretty all much agree that this was horrible. Yeah, well, he was disciplined. He was... Uh, well, I he, think he was fired. Yeah, he was fired. Oh, he was actually yeah. fired. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Mandatory retirement. Yes. There you go. Next topic. Agreed upon, maybe. Yeah. Like, like Chris Matthews. Pockets. Hot Pockets. Hot Pockets. Five months Love of prison me some for the Hot Pockets, uh, by hot the way. Pockets lady. Yes. For like four years, I, I, I sure have nothing ate. but hot <laughs> Pockets of cash hot for pockets. admission. And there's only two ways that Hot Pockets come out. They're either like way <laughs> too hot. Exactly. Or they're frozen. <laughs> they're, yeah, exactly. yeah, they're yeah. frozen totally in true. the middle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Crack a tooth on that Hot mouth. Pocket. That's why they should be sued. But <laughs> hey. I digress. Yeah, car wash mouth, you know, where yeah. the... Little skin hangs down the top of your mouth. Oh, God. (laughs) Boy, that's a great image. It is. is. So the U.S. college admission scam press continues um, when word broke that Michelle Genovs, who is the heiress to the Hot Pockets um, estate, she received five months in prison and a $250,000 fine for paying $300,000 to help her daughter's um, get um, an illegal admission into school. In one instance, she had paid um, somebody to facilitate the admission of one of her daughters to USC um, by bribing an athletics official um, to say that she was coming in as a beach volleyball recruit. And in the other instance, um, one of the associates of the person she paid, whose name is uh, William Rick Singer, He's the consultant here that pled guilty in March of 2019 to facilitating a lot of cheating. Um, for one of her other daughters, someone went in and took the ACT exam um, in her place to inflate her score. So um, this just keeps unfolding, keeps continuing. A lot of famous people have been rolled into this. And so it's just very sad. Or is it? Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> I love Hot Pockets, though. I do. They were great. They were great. They were fantastic. You're, you're off the Hot Pockets. Now, now, now that you get your fancy Peloton, <laughs> no Hot Pockets anymore? She has standards yeah, I'll, now. I'll leave my Hot Pocket while I'm uh, spinning. Sam, favorite, uh, let's go around the room. Favorite Hot Pocket. Go ahead. Pepperoni pizza. Gotta go. It's the only, I think it's the only one. I do see some like turkey ones in the yeah, freezer. Yeah, there's like but, a ham and cheese or something yeah, that you sure. know, is close Pepperoni. tie. Pepperoni. The good news is in prison, she might be eating Hot Pockets all over again. Yeah. They must be serving some off-brand Hot Topics at the... Uh, Federal Penitentiary in California. You said, uh, what was yours, Chris? Pepperoni. Pepperoni? Yeah. Ashley? Uh, Don't a, tell me you've never had a hot pot. Oh, no, I've had I've had my fair share. Uh-huh. Um, 3 a.m., you want it home. Uh, a, a close tie between uh, the ham and cheese, ham and, and, the, cheese. and the pepperoni yeah, pizza. Yeah, all right. But I think she's she's spending about five months. In, she's five months, yes. So I'm not even sure that she's really going to get like a, a full prison Experience, yeah. <laughs> I think you got to believe it. I mean, I watch a lot of prison movies. Like I'm obsessed with prison movies, so I think she'll be a star in prison because they love celebrities. And imagine how many inmates have lived on hot pockets before their time with the penal system. I think like, there's a reality a TV of, show here in the making. Yeah. Penal pockets. Like oh, yeah. Yeah. Penal, penal pockets. Nice. I kind of like that. Who knows what's in there? That we don't want to. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> don't want to know the inside. All right, I'm going to give this name a shot here. Polina Perishkova? Am I Polina right? Perishkova. Okay. Oh obviously, Polina Polina. Obviously, you Polina. didn't grow up in the era of Sports Illustrated swimsuits, if you don't know. She's no. stunning. Like I know Rick Okasik. I know who that mm-hmm. is. Okasik or Okasik? I think Okasik. I don't know. I always pronounced it Okasik. That's how I always yeah, heard I it pronounced. Right. That's the lead singer of the Cars, right? right. Yes. Mm-hmm. I know that. There's not much of the Cars left between him and Ben Orr dying. It's... Not looking good for the cards. So, anyways, Polina, Polina, whatever. Uh, Polina. She's, been, she's been cut from Rick Ocasek's will. Mm. Yes, she was cut from from Rick Ocasek's will. Um, everybody remembers um, that Rick Ocasek suddenly died back in September, uh, and news had broken earlier than that that he and Polina Poroskova had split after nearly thirty years of marriage. Um, apparently, Rick had gone to his attorney, 
and had signed a revised will literally weeks before his death, specifically coming out and saying that while he had provided for four of his six kids, two of whom he had with Poroskova, he had said because he and his wife were in the process of divorcing, um, that even if he should die before the divorce was final, she was not entitled to anything because she abandoned him as far as he had said in his will. Um, Paulina had said that they were living together even after separating and that she was caring for him actually after the surgery that he had had that had led to his untimely death. Um, But that, you know, she, while at first she had heard that she was excluded from his will, um, that she wasn't surprised. But as time has gone on, um, she's very hurt because she really had not abandoned him and, in fact, was the person who found him after he had died. Now, abandonment question is really important because in New York, you can still recover. You still can collect uh, from an inheritance even if the dying spouse cuts you out. If you can prove, if the surviving spouse can prove that um, they were uh, that they abandoned the person who died, and that's the real question. And to your point, she was still living with him. They were separated for years, but she was still living with him, and she was bringing him coffee the day he died. Uh, a couple interesting takes from this case that I that I took were um, we're talking about what one uh, five million dollars? Like, how did Rick Ocasek only have that left in his estate? I, that to when me he died? was was very sad. That was sad. And and by the way, she you know presumably the argument is that she brought a lot to the table during the what twenty four years they were married or or whatever. Um, she at one time was the highest paid spokesperson. She had a six million dollar a year Estee Lauder contract for for many years, which made her the highest paid cosmetics um, spokesperson forever. Um, but yeah, how did he waste away all that I'd, money? I'd say it's Spotify and uh, all the digital. Yeah. you know they don't get any. The, the, the royalties have just crashed. Could be. Um, I actually it reminds me. I, I made up. A, I, I I haven't trademarked it or copyrighted, but I probably should. But I made up a, a term called "That's a Rick Ocasek relationship." You know mm-hmm. what that means? No, what does it mean? It means a really ugly guy with a really good-looking girl. I mean, that's the definition and, of well, that's a rock and roll story. Trade, how are you going to trademark something with somebody else's name? Um, <laughs> no, I'm just he's saying. Dead, it might be easier. But yeah, that's that how kicking your coverage. Yeah, that's what, exactly. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of examples, especially in, in rock, rock and roll, because you know you've got. I mean, he was 20 years older than Paulina Poroskova, and she uh, she was on the uh, Sports Illustrated swimsuit cover for three years in a row. Those were the days when that would be a big deal. That would come to your mail and rock and roll. Exactly. Before free porn, Sam. It was before. Uh, oh, I was born in two thousand three, so you know I don't know any better. <laughs> Ashley, would it be fair to cut Paulina out, even if Rick Ocasek meant to do that? What do you think? So here's what I kind of want to know about this: How much did she help during her time while he was rising up right. financially? Because mm-hmm. if she really put a lot into her into his work and and kind of his growth then i feel for her i mean well i think they got married i'm pretty sure they got married in 89 well after the cars i think the cars started like mid to late 70s so he was a star when they met but they met on that video on drive remember that famous video where she was the star of it which was from 1984 or five i mean for sure they were a big band still then but i mean i think to your point ashley um she was there by his side for years and years supporting him and probably contributing a lot of her income to the marriage when she was the highest paid, you know, supermodel in the world. So, and she's still around. I mean, yeah. get the divorce, right? <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. they've been split for almost feel, three years, I, I think. So, yeah, I saw her interviewed on Sunday, yeah. and she said, you know, they asked her why you didn't get divorced, and she just said, I couldn't imagine life without him. I mean, remember, she met him when she was 19 years old, and her parents had left. Uh, she was alone because her parents were fleeing communism so i think a lot of it has to do with the fact that you know this older guy was protecting her let's keep the trend here with uh, a rock group journey has a lawsuit on their hands now cue the music ben <laughs> cue I'm, the I'm journey waiting, yeah, i'm waiting for the, i'm waiting for it we haven't licensed it so we'll just have some kind of facsimile of it okay yeah well we don't want to do that so anyway so um founding members of journey neil sean and john kane uh have fired the drummer stephen smith and bassist roy ross valerie and have sued them after they attempted uh a coup of the rights um to journey and the the name and and the band so a lot of back and forth a lot of people coming and going out of this band um but according to the lawsuit 
Smith and Valerie had announced that they were going to retire. Um, and after they announced it, they proceeded to try to take over one of the corporate entities that apparently owns rights in the name Journey. They actually held um, some type of a shareholder and board meeting um, to try to vote um, Jonathan Kane out as president of this entity, Nightmare Productions, and replacing him with Smith to remove Neil Sean as secretary and replacing him with Valerie. But what's really interesting is that there is a license agreement, and this is where my trademark lawyer hat becomes important. There's a trademark license agreement that runs the rights to the journey name um, over to Kane and Sean through another entity, Elmo Partners, to which they are still um, members. So, um, you know, it always seems to happen. All these great bands, there's always some drama, bands breaking up, they're suing each other. So um, it looks like they are getting ready to tour with the remaining members. Um, I wonder what Steve Perry thinks of all this, Rich. What do you think? Thinks why is there another guy who's like four foot eight in my place? Arnell. Arnell Pineda. (laughs) He's fantastic. He's pretty good. He sounds like him. He sounds a lot like him. I like Steve Perry. I saw him like 10 years ago. They were really good. I saw him at Wrigley a few years ago. Pretty good. he yeah, sounds a lot s- like Steve Perry. You see a lot of coups in the rock business, you know? Yeah, they're not limited ju- to just governments, That's right? True. You always see bands, you know, touring with a member of the band, and there's always fighting about which, you know, to the degree to which they can use the name of the band, and they'll all change it to, you well, know, like, yes. friends of something. Well, or, like, yes, became Anderson, Bruford, Wakeman, and Howe, because yeah. those guys weren't getting along. What a great name. <laughs> Just rolls off the tongue. That's, that's pure rock and roll right there. Coming up next, Anderson, Bruford, Wakeman, and Howe. Also a law firm. I love this story. I love this story because I've been uh, in bands all my life. My daughter's in a band out of Nashville called Baby April. Little plug. And uh, and all my kids are in bands. And this is just so common. It's yeah. it's hilarious. But they call it a coup now, which is right. uh, you know pretty grand language for something like this. But. Um, this happens all the time. All right, we got to do the inevitable favorite Journey song. Ashley, you're up. Don't stop believing. Oh, wow! Real, way to go out on a limb there, Ashley. <laughs> really take a risk with that one. <laughs> don't say, don't say that you cannot legally say "Don't Stop Believing." Anyone else? How can you not have that one? Oh my god! Well, okay, I'll Journey's come got up a with long two others. Playlist, by the way, well, I mean, Wheels in the Sky is great, oh! but I love. Oh! They, I Sam okay, but finished. I love Ask the, the Lonely. That's a great song, Ask the Lonely. Yeah. What do the lonely say when you ask them? You don't know. <laughs> I'm lonely. Uh, I love Journey. Always have. I love a very underrated Journey song. Is a song called Stone in Love. That's a great song. Amazing song. And also, uh, Only the Young is a great song. Yes. From the uh, Vision Quest soundtrack. And also ask, starring and a young Madonna, the, by the way. And where's Ask the Lonely from? Is that from one of the Rocky movies? Ask the Lonely? I thought Uh-oh. it was from a movie, too. We're going back to Rocky. <laughs> Rocky Four training sequence discussion, Sam? That's one of my favorite movies. Frank Stallone? Mm. Mm-hmm. Wheel in the Sky is my favorite, though. That's a great Don't song. Don't forget Touching, Loving, Squeezing. Oh, yeah. Song, Pretty good. <laughs> Forgot yes. that one. Well, All right, let's go. Oh, last Speaking topic. of music, yes. Okay, oh, we'll, keep it, we'll keep it locked. Harry Styles uh, almost got stabbed. How about it? Yeah, from the... Uh, Stabbing corner of our legal grab bag. Harry Styles, of course, who is a major recording artist, formerly from my favorite band, One Direction, was uh, telling a story in Howard Stern last week of how he was walking around his neighborhood in London, and he was approached by some... Well, he he heard some footsteps, and he got nervous, and he crossed the street. They crossed the street. He crossed back. They crossed back. They approached him, and maybe knew who he was or didn't know who he was, uh, asked him if he had some drugs. He said no, and then asked him for his phone, and uh, they flashed a, a knife, and Harry Styles would not turn over his phone. He had already turned over a wad of cash. Gave them some cash, but you know, said it would be a real drag to wipe his phone and then get all his contacts and... I was thinking, like, who knows he had written songs. what else is on the yeah, phone? Yeah, he had phones. I think he had songs that he had written. Just I, imagine I how many, like, 16-year-old girls would be desperate to see what's on Harry Styles' phone. What was, your daughter, what was your daughter doing that night? She was in London, actually, <laughs> oddly enough, with a gang of phone thieves. But as you know, I love Harry Styles. Just an excuse to talk Harry here in studio. That's Seen so him funny. many times. We'll be no seeing idea. him again on this tour. 
Oh, yeah. Chris? Big fan. I wonder Absolutely. if the assailants were we- wearing a MAGA hat. Yes. Sounds like that kind of story, but it was Could real. Be. Sounds yeah. real. Yeah, he it fought was in up. London. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know, but I'm very curious to know what he had on that, that phone. Yeah, that would he be really great. protected it. Well, I think Probably he's not a, a good idea to knock him over the phone. Well, I mean, he said it happened to him on Valentine's Day. That's right. right. He said if he wasn't alone on Valentine's Day, it would have never happened. <laughs> yeah. So we have to find him a he partner here. Mm-hmm. He, he did. did. He, he did. actually did say that. I feel bad for him. Yeah. Well, wow. maybe uh, some of our single listeners will take pity on Harry Styles. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The lonely, unpopular Harry Styles and maybe throw him a date. I Sam? can't believe this whole story. You're a Harry Styles fan, aren't you? Big time, yeah. Uh, my favorite song is the one with the lyrics. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You remember your first One Direction concert? No. Come on. Are you really the One Direction fan, or is it... Love One Direction. No, I mean, I love... Really? I, I, I didn't know this songs? about you. you I name One yeah, Direction like, songs? A couple songs. Like... Oh my God! What makes you beautiful? Midnight memories. He goes from Journey to One Direction. I, oh I'm not God. sure I can. I can name you every song in order of release. Well, that's pretty good. Don't be questioning my one, one D. I know. I really wanted you Absolutely. to like come like blank to this, but oh, you're, no, you're no, right. No. Well, here actually, I, I too bad we stopped Facebook Live, but. Here's the big payoff to my... Oh, see, oh you were nice. really ready oh, for all this. Wow. Nice. And Harry, proof. From the night I stalked him in Chicago. They were, when or they were in, Chicago, <laughs> in Chicago, I think they were here for Lala or something. And, um, wow. My son's a drummer nice. and got to got to play with them. Oh, really? Yeah. Got to play with One Direction? It, yeah, it, was in a, it wasn't in a show. It was oh, in wow. a club like late at night. Oh, my God. You would, you would think that you would very be happier jealous. to see him. He looks very happy to excited. see him. He was excited. Yeah, that looks fun. Big fan of Legal Face Off. Love the show. Love the show. When can I be on legal grab bag? <laughs> yeah, right. Where was this? That was at uh, the Langham after after the show. Um, just you know, me and some friends hanging out at the Langham. And <laughs> yeah, you were he showed stalking up. Him. Showed up. Maybe there was some stalking involved. Yeah, I can't Could tell be. if this gives you street cred or not. <laughs> or the, the opposite. The opposite. The opposite. A grown man knowing every 1D song. Well, you should talking about a restraining order, maybe. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> Although, I will say, usually it's the celeb that has the smug face, yeah. and it's the person who asked for the picture. Nah, he knows. Yeah, he he, he, he he's a fan. He's he a fan. He who he was dealing with. That's right. That's outstanding. That's great. I don't think we have anything else left to say. After, there is uh, nothing left to say. After that. Nowhere to go after that. All right. That's Chris Stacy, Ashley Alvarez. Thank you both for joining us. Thank, Thank you. you, guys. Thanks, Thanks to Ben. So much. For Rich and Tina, we'll talk to you next time on Legal Face Off. It's Christina Martini and Rich Linkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face Off. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. WGN Radio, we blowing up your stereo. Got a question? Just pick up the phone and they'll let you know. Covering sports, Hollywood, and don't forget the...